We are uh, still in Romans. We've been looking at Romans this semester, making our way through this letter as best we can, uh, drinking from the fire hydrant because pretty much every verse is loaded uh, with things that Paul is saying and unloading on us about the truths of the gospel, uh, about who God is, about who we are, about what Jesus has done. Uh, And the theme for this semester we've said is streams of mercy never ceasing. Uh, and that could be no more true than it is tonight. And it's kind of a good place that we end kind of halfway through the semester where we are tonight, uh, as Paul will kind of make a shift next week. And I'll maybe explain that as we go. But, you know, there's nothing I think that Facebook has maybe gotten right more than the relationship status category. It's complicated, right? Because... If you're honest about any relationship that you have acknowledged via Facebook, the only honest answer to that status is it's complicated. Uh, And we kind of talked about these things last semester when we looked at relationships. But, you know, if you think about every dating relationship we've ever been in, it's complicated, right? Uh, For all the things... Uh, that we all pretend to be nonchalant about dating remains that one thing that it's still kind of okay to freak out about because nobody uh, has it figured out. Because dating is just like one big ball of insecurity, right? Does he or she really like me? What is he or she really thinking? Am I doing it right? Should I call? Should I not call? Should I say, hey, should I not say, hey, should I like her picture? Should I not like her picture? What is going on? What do I do with my hands? All right. That's dating. Double entendre. There's nothing more fundamental to experience of being in a relationship than the constant struggle to know whether you're secure in that relationship. And if you think about it, this is true beyond dating. This is true about all of our relationships. If not on a conscious level, dating is where it's a very conscious level. We're always freaking out about the security of the relationship. Um, but it's, it's, it's true, whether conscious or subconscious, on all levels of all our relationships. Am I really known... Does this person really know who I am and am I really loved? And do I even have the courage to let anyone do both? Would I let anyone do both? Sammy Rhodes, uh, he's actually RUF campus minister at South Carolina, and he spoke at our fall conference this past fall. Uh, His new book, This Is Awkward, came out yesterday. I got it in the mail, and I started reading it. It's really good, and I really want you to buy it because I think he gets money probably because he wrote the book. So buy his book and feed his kids Um, so he doesn't have to raise money like all the rest of us. Anyway. It's really great book. Uh, this is awkward because he does something that is amazing to me. He takes awkward in our in our kind of cultural understanding and haha about awkward, and he gives it a theological definition. This is what he says: awkwardness is the gap in between who we really are and who we pretend to be. Think about that for a second. Awkwardness is the gap in between who we really are and who we pretend to be. This is the enigma of all of our relationships, and dating only just serves to put a magnifying glass on it. All of our relationships magnify the gap between who we really are and who we're pretending to be in that relationship, right? It's like frenemies, the title of our our sermon, for no other reason than I named it that. Um, 
But it's like frenemies, right? Like sometimes you're my friend, sometimes you're an enemy. Sometimes like we love each other and like each other. Sometimes I hate your guts and I just want to be better than you, okay? And that's like all of our relationships really. But here's the thing. We do this exact same thing with God. We do this exact same thing with God. Justification, this glorious truth that Paul has unloaded for us about justification, tells us that of his own free grace and love toward us in Jesus, God has made us right with him. Okay? And we know that to some degree. We hear it and we say, God loves me. Okay, I get it. But sometimes when we're in the midst of the relationship with God, when we think about relating to God, we think, well, sometimes I feel really good about the relationship. But other times, it's complicated. It's awkward. There's a gap in between who I know I'm supposed to be in God's sight and who I really am, right? Because the more I learn about God, the more I actually learn about myself, and the more I think of this picture I have in my head of what I'm supposed to be and what my relationship with God is supposed to be like, but every day actually serves to show me that it's not like that. So what do I do? Here's the dilemma. Most of us know on some level that the gospel gets us in, but the tension, the constant struggle, what we're always thinking to ourselves is how do I stay there? How do I stay there? In Jesus, I am right with God, but how do I stay there? It's complicated, right? Well, once again, Paul has an answer for us to this dilemma. And once again, the answer is, you guessed it, justification. It's the same answer he's been talking about the last couple of passages we look at. Let's read here together the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5 and how Paul tells us the truth of of justification tells us it doesn't have to be complicated. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Three things. Paul wants to help us understand That we do not have to enter or think about or process or live in our relationship with God thinking that it's that it's complicated. Okay, what does he say? He says what we have. He says what we do. And he says how it all happens. Okay, what we have. The first one, what we have because of justification. So verse one, uh, any 
Bible reading, Bible studying, any kind of class or whatever teaches you how to read your Bible. Whenever there's a therefore, you want to ask the question, what's it there for? Get it? That's such a great turn of phrase there. Um, it only works in English, though. Um, but what he's saying there is everything that I've said to this point supports everything I'm about to say. That's what Paul's saying. Okay, because we need a righteousness, because we can't get our own righteousness, because we have a righteousness in Jesus and because we have it through faith. Therefore, we have three things, peace, access and hope. We have peace, access and hope. So get this out of the way at first. He's not saying you should have this. He's not saying you might have this. He's saying if you have faith in Jesus, then you are justified. Then you do objectively have these things, whether you feel it or not. That's important. We'll come back to that later. First one, though, he says is we have peace with God. Okay, words are important. Get what he does not say. He does not say we have the peace of God. He does say that elsewhere. The Bible does also say that elsewhere. But that's not what he says here. Paul here says, because of justification, we have peace with God. Meaning, before we did not have peace with God. Meaning, before we were not in a state of peace, we're actually in a state of hostility. Okay? You think about peace. Peace is a universal obsession. Okay? Every culture, every nation, every period of history, peace is a universal obsession. The means of obtaining that peace may be different, but peace is a universal obsession. Whether, it's, whether we want world peace, whether we want political peace, whether we want economic peace, relational peace, financial peace, personal peace, that, that so coveted inner peace that somehow some voice somewhere is supposed to give me when I make big decisions or whatever, religious or not, Right? All of these, all of this obsession with peace flows from the foundational human need. Peace with God. We have a universal obsession with peace. Because universally, because of our sin, we are born into a state of hostility with our maker. George Whitfield was a, 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 what's it called, great awakening preacher, uh, came to America Preached the gospel, a lot of people were saved uh, through his preaching. But one thing he used to say was, Do you know why the dogs bark and the cats hiss as you pass by? Because they know that you have a quarrel with your maker. It's just Whitfield's way of saying that even creation itself knows that we are not right with the one who made us, the one in in whose image we are made, right? Um, Because by nature, we are not at peace with God. We're alienated for God. We're separated from him because of our sin. And we've talked about this all semester, right? It keeps popping up. And it will keep popping up. The more you read the Bible, the more it keeps popping up. And that's why a lot of people, they get tired of it, right? You know, I I get the sin part. Can we move on to something else? But we got to understand this. Uh, There was this documentary that I just randomly came across once. And I've used this in a sermon before, so maybe you remember it. But it was called 9-11, The Falling Man. I don't know if you've ever seen this image, but there was an iconic, there's many iconic photos that came out of uh, the aftermath of 9-11, right? Uh, and one of them was a picture, very um, surreal, um, peaceful in a weird way, of a man upside down plunging to his death 
jumping from the tower uh, because he didn't, he'd rather jump than face the fires there. But the thing about that picture, um, though it was only the picture of one man, there were many uh, that jumped to their deaths that day, and understandably so, right? Um, and, the, and what the documentary explores is pretty much how immediately after and ever since the media and everybody else ignored the existence of the jumpers, right? It was never really fully addressed. And they get some quotes from some people in this documentary. And this is one guy, he's like sitting in his white picket fence yard, and this is what he says. He says, you know, I'm not an angry guy. Nothing phases me. I'm, I'm pretty lighthearted. But that day, that picture just made me angry. Which is interesting. Out of all the things that happened that day, he identifies that, that picture as the one that made him angry. Right? There's another person in the documentary that says, this one, this one picture, this got to the humanity of it all in ways that the other photos did not. It got to people. And so what the documentary goes on to explore is that for all the horror of that day, people just could not handle the picture of the falling man because it was just too personal. Right? It brought it too close to home. I think in a weird way, a weird connection, I don't know, maybe it doesn't connect, but there it is. We don't like how often and how necessary it is to talk about sin, to talk about our natural hostility towards the one who made us. Because we know that if what the Bible says about our sin is true, it completely obliterates anything and everything that we have used to justify ourselves. It completely blows away anything and everything that we have used to try to secure peace on our own terms. And we're right back at square one of what the Bible says about our sin is that we're trying to get everything on our own terms, right? But Paul says because of justification, we have peace with God. There is no more hostility. But the thing is, is he goes further than that. The second thing he says, look at verse 2. He says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Okay, this one is huge because we usually stop at the first one. Whether you realize it or not, you usually get the peace one. You get the fact that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done... The hostility has ceased. I'm on okay terms now. There's a cease fire, but that's just the problem. When you view it as a cease fire, you live your everyday thinking, what is going to set it off again? And when you do that, you've missed the gospel. Paul takes it further and says that we um, have access. We have stepped into this grace. We have a standing now. Again, Sammy Rhodes, uh, his definition of awkwardness as this gap between who I really am and what I pretend to be. Um, you know, we think, well, whew, ceasefire. I can collect myself and now I can live the way that God wants me to, right? But then we wonder why we are haunted by this specter that at any moment I'm going to screw it up and I'm going to set off his hostility again, Right? And it goes back, the relationship status goes back to it's complicated, right? Well, I'm trying, right? Because we know who we really are and we wonder, can anyone really accept me if they see all the places where I fall short? I get the fact that he has dealt with that in the past, but what about now and what about tomorrow? And so we live, our living in light of the gospel, it becomes this stress, it becomes this anxiety, it becomes this like spiritual Jenga where we're trying to remove the right pieces, trying to put the right pieces back on, and we're just wondering, when is it going to fall all apart again? 
Or we've seen it fall apart again and we think we've lost it. But Paul is saying that it's so much more than that. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's not just a cessation of hostility. It's the beginning of a friendship, of a relationship where we are welcome and ushered in. And we can't get out. (laughs) He goes even further, thirdly. He says we have hope. We have hope. Now, again, the word hope doesn't do very much for us because in our definitions, hope is like kind of fingers crossed, like maybe, maybe not, it'll happen, but I hope so. Here's the thing. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about sure things, not wishful thinking of sure things. When the Bible talks about hope and it says that we have hope, it's saying that we have something sure And not only do we have something sure, we have something sure to come, something in the future. Again, Sammy Rhodes, I wouldn't have a sermon if not for that book last night. But something else he says, I love this. He says, the truth about awkward moments is that they're awkward because we long to be embraced as we are and not as we should be. The truth about awkward moments is that they're awkward because we long to be embraced as we are, not as we should be. Here it is. If I could sum it all up, this is what Paul is saying about what we have in justification. Get it. God, through Jesus, has embraced us as we are by dealing with who we were to make us into what we should be. God, through Jesus, has embraced us as we are By dealing with who we were to make us into who we should be. This is why the relationship is not not complicated. Because God says, when I enter a relationship with you, when I justify you, I meet you in your present, I cover your past, and I will preserve you into your future. Benefits of justification. We could spend semesters and semesters just on that. But I got to quickly move on to the next two points. We have that in justification. That's what Paul's saying, okay? But this is what the next thing that Paul just wants us to think about. What do we do then? How does this inform or affect how I live, the choices I make, the things I think about, the things I feel, right? You all want to know how you're supposed to feel. And Paul picks an interesting word here. He says, we rejoice, right? Uh, it's an interesting word because it's the exact same word in the Greek that we talked about last week when, we call, when in chapter 4 it calls it boasting. It's actually the same word in the Greek. One of the first things that Paul says at the end of chapter 3, that if justification by faith is true, then our boasting is excluded, right? And, And what he means there is that there's nothing in us or about us to boast or rejoice about, right? Now Paul says that the natural outworking of justification in our lives is a boasting, but not in ourselves. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, And we rejoice in sufferings. What does that mean? And somehow they're tied together because suffering produces hope. Important disclaimer. I don't know if that's a disclaimer. But keep in mind here. 
Paul is saying that this is true of people who know that they've been justified by grace. Okay? Follow me here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, the author of Hebrews says something interesting. He says, we have this. Maybe you've seen this on a post-it note or a tweet somewhere. Listen to this. It's a great verse. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Okay, the imagery there is that in the temple, there is this inner room. There's the innermost room of the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies. No one went in this room. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where the glory of God dwelt, okay? No one went into this room except the high priest, and he only went in there one time a year, okay? The Gospels tell us that the moment Jesus died... The veil in the temple was torn in two. He's talking about the veil that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, right? That there's nothing any longer separating us from the presence of God. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the hope that we have in Jesus, what he has done for us is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. It connects us to something. And obviously, the metaphor of an anchor, we kind of get that intuitively, that it's about stability. But think about this. When you drop an anchor, I'm not a sailor. Maybe you are. When you drop an anchor, just think about the metaphor. When you drop an anchor, it's not the anchor that holds you. It's not the anchor that gives you stability. It's what the anchor holds on to, right? The solid ground or the rocks beneath. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the hope that we have now connects us, no matter how tossed about we may be by life circumstances, to a security beyond those circumstances. Something that we may not even see, right? So we rejoice in our sufferings, not because they're good. If if sufferings were good, God would not have hung his own son on the hook of human suffering to eradicate it one day. It's not that sufferings are good. We rejoice in sufferings because we look through them to something more sure. They actually point us beyond themselves to something more sure. Do you think about the, the way that the most of us usually pray, the, things that, the kind of things that we ask for when we, when we ask for prayer, when we have prayer requests or when we pray ourselves? Our default usually is to pray for changes in our circumstances. That's not wrong. People in the Bible pray for changes in circumstances, and God is the God of our circumstances. But think about it. Our default is always to think in terms of our circumstances. Show me the right guy or girl, right? Help me make the good grade. Help me, help me choose or do the right thing. But Paul says a true understanding of belief and justification reorients our entire perspective because we see security not in different circumstances. We actually see that our security ultimately is beyond our circumstances, meaning that no matter the circumstances, our security cannot be touched. It's that sure. So we rejoice in our sufferings, not because of them, but because in them. They are leading and even transforming us into something else. Into the image of Christ, the one who suffered for us, right? So what do we do? We rejoice. The first thing we do is we rejoice. When we come back after break, Paul's going to say, but we do so much more than that. Come back. But to conclude this, Paul offers some logic of all of it. How? 
How do we have these things? How do we know that they're sure things? How do they lead us to rejoicing no matter our circumstances, right? Paul pretty simply yet profoundly lays it out for us in six, verses 6 through 11. Maybe some familiar verses to you. Look at verse, let's just look over verses 6 through 11. Everything he says in verses 6 through 11 is said to support everything he says there in the first five verses. While we were yet weak, helpless, ungodly, Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled by his death. Okay? Just keeps, we can't get away from Jesus' death. And guess what? Paul's going to keep bringing it up. Over and over and over again. Here's the thing with verses 6 through 11, if you're familiar with them at all. I fear that for many of you, there is a grossly wrong way that many of you expect me to apply those verses. Paul is giving the logic of what, of the, how can we know these are the benefits of justification and what are we supposed to do in light of them? I fear. That there's an application of verses 6 through 11 that you expect that goes a little something like this. Jesus was willing to suffer all that for you. What are you willing to suffer for him? Or something like this. Jesus gave all that for you. What are you going to give for him? I have one small, it's not small, problem with that kind of application that I have heard one too many times in my life. It's not the gospel. And it's not what Paul says. Read what Paul says. And let me paraphrase it for you. God has already done all of this for you. How much more do you think he's going to do until the end? Who's the subject of that verse? If God did all that for you while you were his enemy, what do you think he's going to do for you now that you're his friend? That's the argument Paul's making, right? My friends... One word to sum up this whole sermon, and maybe I should have just said this and been done. Assurance. Why is it complicated with us and God? Because we have no idea where to find assurance. We all want it. We're all searching for it. We're all hoping for the magic bullet. And we all hate each of you that seem so confident in your relationship with God. Right? Do you want the key to assurance? Here it is. And this actually is the more reason why I entitled the sermon Frenemies. I did have a reason other than the Disney movie. Anyway, if you want the key to assurance, you are going to have to stop believing the lie that God is merely tolerating you. That he's just waiting for you to fill the gap between who you really are and what you pretend to be or what you need to be. That, quite simply, is not grace. It is not gospel. It's shame. It's fueled by shame and it produces shame. What is shame? Uh, Sammy Rhodes, again, found a really good, helpful, I just love this definition of shame. Shame is the subjective experience of objective guilt. 
right? We all know that we are lacking in some way, and so we are all trying to fill that up in some way. Shame is the subjective experience of objective guilt. But here's gospel assurance. Gospel assurance is the exact opposite of shame. Gospel assurance is the subjective experience of objective love. Gospel assurance is the subjective experience of objective love. Where in the world does that come from? Two places, actually. One subjective and one... Well, they're both objective, but one is somewhat subjective and internal, one objective and external. Look at verse 5. First place it comes to... This is the first time Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in this letter. It won't be the last. He says, verse 5, subjectively and internally... Because he's poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We all wonder, am I really known and am I really loved? God has done both of those to such an extent that he dwells in you continually. He knows you to the bottom, but he loves you to the utter heights. And he has poured that love into your heart through his spirit. Verse 11, though, he says, rejoice in God through Jesus, through whom we've received reconciliation. And we've looked at this the last few weeks, right? That there is something outside. Thank God there is something outside of my roller coaster emotions. That proves to me and tells me, no matter how much I doubt it and no matter how much I don't feel it, that God loves me. And that is a cross stained with his son's blood. You notice, read, go home and read the letter. Read where we've been and read where Paul is going. Every single paragraph, it seems to go back to the cross, 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 to the cross. And you keep wondering, when are we going to get away from the cross? Never. Why? Because there will never be a day and there will never be a moment that you do not need it. And so it stands there for us, for all history, proclaiming once and for all that God loves me. We're about to sing a song, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go, one we do often. It was written by a guy named George Matheson. And the story... beautiful story behind the writing of this hymn was that George Matheson went blind and his fiance left him because she didn't want to be married to a blind man. And he actually penned this hymn on the night of his sister's wedding because his sister uh, was the one who took care of him after he went blind. And now she was leaving uh, to start her own life. And what he says is that in the, in, the, in the composing of this hymn, that something of an incredible sadness passed between him and the Lord. And he sat down and he wrote this hymn, he says, as if it was dictated to him in about 15 minutes. And there's a particular line, I think it's in verse 3, that we'll read, that we'll sing together. And he says this, I traced the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That mourn shall tearless be. And when he says rainbow, he's not talking about like care bears, like bright and happy. Yay. Rainbow. Biblical rainbow. 
The rainbow was the sign of God's promise to Noah that he would never destroy the earth again by a flood, right? And the word bow there to make rain bow is the word for a battle bow, a bow that a soldier would have used in battle, right? And so the picture that God gives Noah and also gives us that he would never destroy the world again through a flood was the picture of a battle bow cocked and aimed where? At himself. So you see, when trials come, when suffering comes, and, and Paul is not making light of suffering. Read Second uh, Corinthians 11. When he talks about suffering, he's talking about imprisonment. He's talking about stoning. He's talking about everyone close to him leaving him. He's talking about being in chains for weeks and weeks on end. You see, when trials come, the answer is not that we just try to keep our head up or grit our teeth and make our way through it. No, Paul says we rejoice. In what? See, the cross. You see what the cross shows us? The cross shows us that the arrow has been loosed. But it hasn't been loosed on us. It was loosed on us. On Jesus. And if we don't know this, if we don't understand this, if we don't get justification, the reason Paul keeps on and keeps on talking about it is because not only uh, if we don't get it, every trial then becomes a double trial. Because not only do we have to endure the pain of the trial itself, we have to wonder, does God really love me? Did I screw it up this time? Is he trying to teach me a lesson? This is what you got to see. He has not left those questions open to you. He's put his spirit into our hearts. He's hung his son on a cross for all the world and all of history to see that there is a love that will not let us go. Because it let his son go in our place. There was a friend a few months ago that got married. And culturally speaking, she's older than most girls when they get married. And her sister recounted at the rehearsal dinner about the first time that her sister texted her to tell her that her boyfriend had told her that he loved her. And her text said this, He told me he loved me. I believe it. And it feels good. We are all craving for that. (laughs) And we are all looking in so many places for it. And the reason Paul keeps bringing up the cross over and over and over and over again is to remind us (laughs) As cliche as it sounds, God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you even more that it's a love that will not let us go. No matter how much we doubt it, no matter how much at times we don't feel it, no matter how much we think we've screwed it up, It's new every morning. It's always there for us.
And the cross is all the proof that we need. So we thank you for it in the name of your Son whom was given for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.